Hello, once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jackson Nefflin. Thank you for joining us for the inaugural episode of our Bride of Monster Bracket. This is our second Halloween bracket because it is heading to the spooky time of year, folks. It is officially fall. This is an idea we came up with uh, along with some of our listeners last year as a sequel to this bracket focusing on female monsters. And women in horror as well. We're trying to yeah. have like uh, a lady protagonist and a lady monster where possible. Or monstress, I suppose. A comic series that everybody should read. And we will be starting off this bracket with 1979's Alien, as well as 2016's Colossal. Which is a knockdown drag out uh, comparison to start out with. I'm honestly a little bit worried. I have no idea where this is going to go. Colossal definitely would not have made it onto a bracket if we had not curated it. Mm -hmm. But I am very glad it did. Mm -hmm. So this should be a very interesting double feature to discuss. I think both these movies are very good. And I assume people have seen Alien... Or at least know of it. Colossal, I feel like no one has seen. I would say pause and go watch this if you haven't yet, because we're probably going to spoil it, and it's really good. But also, trigger warning for both of these movies. Yes. For Alien, we're going to have trigger warnings for some gore and body horror. That's really well done. We'll get into that. As well as some mild themes of sexual assault. And we're going to get into that in the episode, too. So if you want to skip out on this one, we'll put the timestamp of the description of where our decision is. And for Colossal, we de- also have to have some content warnings, specifically for abusive relationships as well as alcoholism. And those are much more overt in that film. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you a second to dip out if you need to. But um, if not, welcome to Bride of Monster Bracket, episode one. <laughs> start with Alien. The crew of the commercial towing vessel, the Nostromo, is brought out of cryosleep earlier than expected. Rather than being close to home, their ship's AI has encountered what appears to be a distress beacon, and the crew are obligated to investigate. They land on the moon the signal is originating from, and Captain Dallas, Executor Officer Kane, and Navigator Lambert make the trek to the signal on. There they find an alien vessel, its apparent pilot long dead, and a strange bunch of eggs in a containment field of sorts. Kane examines an egg, noticing there's a life form inside. We then cut to the away team returning, the creature having attached to Kane's face through his helmet. Warrant Officer Ripley refuses to let them in as it breaks quarantine procedure. Science Officer Ash ignores her and lets them through. Crew takes Kane to the med bay, but they can't remove the creature without killing Kane. They leave him in stasis while Ash attempts to find a solution. After some time, the creature detaches from Kane on its own and is found dead. And Kane seems to be fine. However, while he's eating with the rest of the crew, he begins to choke and convulse and a new creature bursts from his chest and runs off. The crew splits into groups to hunt down the alien, but they begin getting picked off. First Brett, then Dallas. With Ripley now commanding officer, she accesses the ship's computer and discovers the company has given Ash secret orders to recover the alien, and that the crew is expendable. Ripley confronts Ash, but he attacks her. Parker intervenes and knocks Ash's head off, revealing him to be an android. The three remaining crew members decide to initiate this Nostromo's self-destruct protocol and escape in the shuttle. Lambert and Parker are killed while gathering supplies. Just before Ripley enters stasis, she realizes the creature has wedged itself into the shuttle's mechanics. She stealthily dons a spacesuit and lures the creature out. Just before it can attack, Ripley opens the airlock and the creature is pulled towards empty space. The alien finally gone, Ripley records a log of events and enters stasis. Well, it's twists and turns for this one, honestly. Mm-hmm. I also think it's really interesting that this was, for both of us, the, our first time watching Alien. Yeah. Considering how much of a just cultural behemoth this is, and how many sequels it's gotten that neither of us had seen the original, is interesting. 
And I generally think of myself as a pretty seasoned horror buff, so I guess it's kind of like a, a dead angle for me. For I haven't seen like the Prometheuses either, or is there like a third series where it's just like Alien, Aliens, and then the Prometheuses? There's also the Alien versus Predator. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. There we go. Yeah. The, the Alien has also appeared, I believe, in like a Mortal Kombat game at one point. Sure. Like, I assume that the Alien has appeared in many different video game and uh, book kind of things as well. But yeah. This movie does an excellent job setting up a universe that is rife with expanded universe content. It's clearly the future. We don't know exactly how far. Society has advanced in certain ways, but not others. It's a big open world with protocols for what to do if you encounter an alien life form. So clearly other alien stuff out there. This draws me in in the same way that something like Star Wars would draw me in. And they're like, okay, cool. There's many more stories in this galaxy. Awesome. There's some really interesting world building going on. They never mentioned the company that Nostromo works under. However, their logo is like emblazoned on a bunch of props and sets in this film, but they don't mention it by name until the sequel, Aliens. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Star Wars and the... Interior design of the Nostromo definitely reminds me quite a bit of like, Star Wars set design as well. Mm-hmm. It's this very grungy Apollo 11 punk vibe. And it makes sense that the films are only two years apart. I'm sure that there's definitely some crossover with set designers and whatnot. There's also definitely some 2001 A Space Odyssey mm-hmm. vibes, which is like 11 years before this. There's definitely... This like ray gun gothic aesthetic when you think of 40s and 50s sci-fi, but I definitely think like late 60s through the 70s also ha- kind of has a aesthetic kind of filters throughout the entire genre. Well, we were very enamored of space travel at that point because the moon landing was still fairly recent. We were doing a lot of things with NASA at the time that was kind of just on the front of our minds and we didn't really have the knowledge that we have now of how small computers were going to get and how very automated a lot of things were going to be. Mm-hmm. So... The kind of fun of watching people with like these giant consoles covered with stuff and buttons everywhere they have to press all the things for and Dorothy has to do all the manual stuff with. It feels a lot more industrial. Yeah. It's definitely nostalgic seeing all of the computer equipment being in that like weird off-white color that everything used to be in before we switched to like blacks and grays. Mm-hmm. I will say the Nostromo is pretty packed. I feel like every room has lots of stuff in it and lots of just exposed cables and stuff and it's very, clearly very large and all that jazz which is weird for how small the crew is i think part of it is it's a towing vessel they're towing something back home mm-hmm. so you have to think of it like a tugboat their actual ship is pretty small and then the thing that they're towing is like much bigger oh sure but the interior of their ship i mean mm-hmm. always seems like very full i think that's partially just due to them not being very well funded and the ship being old that's fair yeah this is one of those movies that doesn't uh, have the optimistic take that we will outgrow money in space. Mm-hmm. Something I don't want to let go untalked about. This movie is best viewed in some sort of isolation way. Like, make sure that you have lights off, headphones on, so that you get the full boom, this omnipresent. The sound mixing is so good in this. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of intentional use of silence just to uh, help with that feeling of being isolated and the idea that sound doesn't travel in space. Mm. Oh, yeah, this also has the best tagline of all time, question mark. Uh, In space, nobody can hear you scream. Yeah, it's been used, reused, and reworked so many times. Mm -hmm. It's a classic. Yeah. We've talked about the Nostromo's architecture. I also want to talk about the alien vessel. Mm. Uh, So many of you are probably well aware that H.R. Giger did a 
huge amount of design for this film. He worked on the alien vessel as along with the actual alien. It works really well. Everything's like super creepy. Everything looks like it's made of bones that have been like coated in vinyl rubber. It does such a great job of contrasting against the very industrial look of the Nostromo. I guess we'll get into it now. It also does have the very uncomfortable sexual nature to a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And that is suffused throughout the entire film. Mm-hmm. If you're familiar with the interviews that Ridley Scott gave about this film, one of the things that he wanted to explore with Alien was the idea of a sexual violence being perpetrated against men. And it, it's definitely engaging with the idea of role reversal for men being the victims of sexual assault. Ridley Scott is definitely coming from this place where he feels that, at least then, rape isn't something that happens to men, only to women, and thus him trying to explore the sexual fears of women by placing them onto men. I get what he's going for, but it comes from a certain comfortable perspective, if that makes sense. You're allowed to play with this fear because it's not something that you have to worry about day to day. Which is weird because the movie's definitely interacting with gender, but and I think a lot of people have this like very good feeling about it from a gender perspective. I don't know if I'm in that same boat with some stuff with it. Like there's a lot of Ripley I'm sorry, it's Ridley Scott, Ripley is the is the yes. movie. Yeah. Very confusing. Yes. Why would you do that? Like Ripley having all these like quote unquote masculine traits that allow her to survive the movie in contrast to the mousy one whose name I forget. Lambert. In contrast to Lambert, who is more of the feminine archetype of a horror movie character mm-hmm. who dies. But also the way that the, uh, the ship's AI is called Mother, and there's a bit of, like, Ripley raging against Mother with, with like, a lot of gendered insults. It's... I feel like Ridley Scott has some issues he's working through in this movie. Yeah. I definitely think in the sequel they play up the feminine characteristics of Ripley quite a bit more, where like she is acting as this mother figure to the child that's with them. Mm-hmm. But here we don't really get any of that. The film is definitely interacting with the idea of the glass ceiling and women in leadership positions and some of the difficulties that they experience, like especially with no one listening to her about uh, quarantine protocol. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of not taking Ripley serious enough that happens, but no one directly says, because you're a woman. It's just kind of implied throughout, which I think that is honestly pretty realistic. Generally, at a certain level of sophistication that you need to maintain a job, Sexism in the workplace isn't as overt as like, you're a woman, get back in the kitchen in space. It's more just like disregarding her opinions about stuff. And Mm. that feels realistic. That gender exploration is fine. This wasn't necessarily true at the time. This didn't become canon until pretty recently. But the fact that this like perfect organism monster alien thing was designed by a gay robot makes it a lot more confusing in terms of gender analysis. When did that get added? Uh, Alien Covenant. That's canon now. Okay, that Ridley Scott did direct that one, so... Yeah, it's canon. <sighs> yeah, did you know the alien was actually meant to buy Michael Fassbender, who's very mad at his human dad? Yeah, and where is... Like, in Aliens, Ripley is fighting, like, the alien queen and is very specifically coded as female. 
This one, the alien's very androgynous. Mm-hmm. At one point, Ash calls it uh, Kane's son. I- again, there's a lot to unpack here about parenthood, but I don't think that alien has pronouns. Yeah, I think it's part of that is just like a reference to the biblical Cain. Right. Which I do think works for upping the, the tension and the fear and this sort of wrath of God. It's packing on one more metaphor thing to into this movie that already is pretty dense. And I mm-hmm. think we could have not bothered with that or saved it for something else. Yes. I, I don't disagree. I love exploring religiosity in hyper-industrial sci-fi. That's always really fun. I think that this has other stuff going on that, that doesn't work here. Mm-hmm. The more I think about it, I'm coming more and more down on the like thumbs down on the gender sexual violence stuff that this film is doing. But what I do love is that while the explicit antagonist of the movie is this alien that Ash describes as perfect organism, a survivor, being clouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. He's describing this hyperfusion killing machine alien but also the more subliminal antagonist is the company they all work for, this anonymous co- corporation that by not having a name is functionally every corporation. Mm-hmm. And the idea of a corporation as an entity that is, again, unclouded by delusions of remorse or whatever, like that metaphor works. As a very anti-corporate movie, that metaphor is incredibly rock solid in this movie. I wish it had leaned into just that. Yeah. But also I think this movie doesn't quite have an understanding of like, this is not like a hashtag Union Strong movie. Um, mm-hmm. There's this bit where the two kind of blue-collar workers on the ship are asking to be paid a fair wage. Mm-hmm. And our protagonist is like, mm, no, no, no. Stop. Know your place. I'm not going to do any more work. We get this straightened out. Brett, you're guaranteed by law to get a share. What? Why don't you just fuck off? What? And I didn't love that, honestly. Yeah. It's really weird, especially since they are just in general treated as second-class citizens on the ship. Mm -hmm. They're just engineers. They don't really have a ranking in the hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And they're kind of crude and, like, less sophisticated as as characters. Yeah. Also, our only black character. Good job, movie. I will give the movie credit for killing the woman besides Ripley, uh, Lambert, and Parker, uh, our only black character, last yeah, I think that, again, feeds into what Scott wanted to do with role reversal and, like, hitting all of the cis white men first. Mm-hmm. We haven't really talked about actors all that much. Mm. We have some great talent here. Uh, we have Sigourney Weaver as Ripley, one of her first film roles. She knocks it out of the park, and this is going to set her up for pretty much the rest of her career. Yeah, as it should. And she is doing a great job here. It's such an iconic role. We've touched on a lot of the ways that she is best able to deal with the threat. Our coded is very masculine. Mm-hmm. But I think because this is treading the fine line between horror and action, that's almost unavoidable. Oh, sure. I'm not saying that like that's not a reasonable way to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. It's more just it gets into the things that we conceive of as being empowering and that's kind of a complicated conversation about empowerment and gender and masculinity and femininity and all that jazz. Yeah. There's one thing that I really dislike. One thing? The shot in the... Well, there's a couple shots in the shuttle as Ripley is getting ready to go into stasis or getting ready to put on the spacesuit where she's just in her underwear. And the leering that the camera is doing at her is really uncomfortable. And honestly, just cut of her underwear is... Like, it makes very little sense. Earlier on in the film, we see the men waking up from cryostasis... And they're all kind of in just like these 
loose-fitting boxers and whatnot that all makes sense. But her underwear looks like it's two sizes too small. Mm-hmm. You would assume that like they would all just have the same uniform of white boxers or whatever. The yeah, same just, kind of generic thing. Yeah, unisex stuff. Mm-hmm. Or, alternatively, all the men should have been in tight bikinis as well. <laughs> Only two options. <laughs> but it's, it's a very different movie. Yeah, like, just the male gaze in those few shots is really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I kind of get it. The monster is about to show up, and it's the fear of being incredibly vulnerable when the the thing attacks. I get how the very thin veneer of, of metaphor is happening here, but I think that would have worked just as well if the camera wasn't leering at her so much and if the underwear wasn't so very, like, inviting of that. I understand the reasoning that got us there, but I, they didn't need to dial it up as much to get the result that they were looking for. Mm-hmm. Which is what often happens when you try to show the horror of vulnerability, especially, especially sexual vulnerability in this medium where everything is visual and also when it's a vulnerable woman and a lot of men behind the camera. That's kind of how it goes and it's frustrating. It's also unfortunate that there's a lot of examples of doing it in this very creepy, uncomfortable way. And there are very few examples of how to do it in a way that allows the woman on camera to maintain some dignity. Moving on to, I think, the the next best character in the film, Ian Holm playing Ash. Mm-hmm. Just fantastic. Like, long before the reveal, you realize that there's something off about Ash. Mm-hmm. Like, he's just this cold, cold bastard. Mm-hmm. But, like, you don't really realize that he's a robot mm-hmm. at first. Like, that's, that's a fun reveal, but the really he's a company stooge. It's not really a reveal. It's just the, the confirmation. Yeah. But, again, what a good metaphor that the person who works for the company has literally been stripped of all of his humanity and he is just a functionary. Like, that works so well. Mm-hmm. The horror of that. I also really like that whenever he's calling the captain down to tell him what's going on with Kane, he doesn't give any fucking information at all. He's just like, it's, it's easier if you come down here. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if that was a device in order to avoid expositing via just dialogue as opposed to visuals, or whether that was specifically Ash wanting to record reactions of the crew to what was happening. Mm, I could see that. I think it also gives them less time to prepare themselves for what's coming so that they are more easily picked off. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean... I assume that the creature's not going to go after Ash because he's not, like, a flesh and blood thing, so it's not going to eat him, or whatever it was doing. Cooning them? Making, like, egg sacs? I don't know. If they all die, he's fine. He can just turn himself off until they reach landfall. Mm-hmm. You know, he does a good job of being, like, sinister, but not, like, maniacal about it. Yeah, like, I think one perfect example of that is he has a line, there being new developments with Kane, and he calls them interesting. Mm-hmm. That gives you a lot of insight to where his mind is at. Yeah. I think broadly the rest of the characters, they are pretty well acted, but none of them are quite as memorable as those two. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone else gets quite enough screen time to be terribly memorable. I think Parker almost gets there. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I think the third most fully realized character is the alien. Yeah. But the alien is not complex. (laughs) No. It is horrifyingly simple, honestly. Mm -hmm. This film does such a great job of obfuscating the full silhouette of the creature for Mm -hmm. a good chunk of the film. I also really like, whenever they do a close-up on the alien, it's always just wet. Yeah. It's always, like, wet and slimy and smooth-looking. 
it's shiny, so you're getting this really distinct contrast between how deeply dark it is and the like bright lights shining on it Mm -hmm. which gives the added effect of showing all the small details on the suit that show how for lack of a better term alien this creature is Mm -hmm. uh sorry i'm just remembering the eggs they kind of see through they're kind of translucent you got that face hugger just like twitching around in there and i hate it oh all the effects are just so good like they're they're all practical effects and they hold up so well it's uncomfortable how meaty some of the like the dead face hugger is yeah i hate it i really hate it <laughs> these effects have aged like sigourney weaver and it's very I, I don't like it also like some magnificent jump scares some magnificent like scenes of long slow building tension as a horror movie this is excellent There are a number of shots in the film that are kind of just these slow shots of empty interiors. There's not even a whole lot of sound in the background. Sometimes there's silence and it doesn't feel like it's accomplishing much, but showing off the set. And I get this feeling that Scott is just doing it in order to show off his like artistic cred. Sure. Like it, It doesn't feel like it's accomplishing anything. It's more so just showing off with the camera, for the camera. Sure. Fair enough. I'm not opposed to movies being pretty, Mm -hmm. but you could probably trim, you know, five minutes by just cutting here and there if you wanted to. Mm -hmm. I also think that the movie could do a better job of differentiating the spaces in question. Like, towards the end when it's just Ripley and the monster and the cat she's hell-bent on saving, I can't always tell, like, is she in the shuttle or not? Where is she in relation to other stuff? I think if I watched it again, I might be able to pick up on it better, but I wish they'd done a little bit better job, like, shuttle blue, rest of thing orange, or whatever. The three decks are not always easily differentiated, especially... There are three decks? Yeah, there are three. Okay. I believe you. The three decks aren't very well differentiated, especially as the lights are going off. Yeah. I do think that that works to the film's benefit later on, but I wish we had done a better job of establishing these distinct locations beforehand. The whole thing feels cohesive, but it's not quite laid out in such a way that you know exactly how far she has to go to get to safety or whatnot. Mm Mm-hmm. Which I think is really important for a horror action. I, I really want to know exactly where everybody is in relation to each other so I can, like, know what the tension is. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just running through woods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially if you don't have the creature on screen being this immediate threat. Mm-hmm. We've racked on this movie quite a bit. I think there's, like, some some troubles with it. But I also, like, uh, am genuinely very impressed. I'm glad I watched it. There's a lot mm-hmm. to love about this. Yes. Um... It is definitely the like dawn of the 80s horror renaissance, mm-hmm. um, and I'm glad we have stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Speaking of stuff I'm glad we have, let's talk about Colossal. Yeah, why don't you go ahead and give us a summary. When Gloria's boyfriend grows tired of her party girl habits and kicks her out, with no better option, she moves back into her childhood home, her parents being gone at the time, and reconnects with childhood friend Oscar, who owns the only bar in town. She gets drunk with him and his friends, Hot Joel and Unhot Garth, and doesn't make it home until daybreak. She wakes up that afternoon to news that last night a kaiju appeared in downtown Seoul and then vanished again. Oscar takes pity on her and offers her a job at the bar, and she helps clean and renovate the closed-down section over the next few days as news of the monster attacks continue. Coming home drunk every morning, she quickly realizes the monster is her. It mirrors her movements whenever she stands in a certain playground at around 8am. After falling over drunk while showing off to her new friends and causing massive property damage back in Seoul, she resolves never to go there again and writes out a giant apology. But Oscar, who apparently also has a soul avatar, a giant robot, is having too much fun and doesn't care who gets hurt. Oscar uses the fact that Gloria cares to control her, holding people's soul hostage. 
Unable to stop her in her hometown, Gloria flies to Seoul so the monster will manifest back home. She grabs Oscar and throws him into the distance, and the people celebrate the robot being destroyed. The plot, when you lay it out, isn't that strong. It is much better felt as the mood, the ambiance, and the way the emotions play out. I sped through the last half of the movie, which is where the real meat is. Yeah. Both of our films this week are slow burners. Mm-hmm. They start off slow, and then they ratchet up, and then their third acts are this whirlwind of things going on. But it gives us a lot of time to absorb the setting and absorb the psychology of our characters. Mm-hmm. I too this before you hadn't, and you spent some of the first half of the movie going, why is Oscar like this? Why is he Why is he doing this? I don't quite get this. Because you didn't realize that he's this deeply broken serial abuser. The film does a great job of hiding Oscar's true motivations and true nature. Joel, they never do a really good job of getting to what makes him tick. And why he's hanging around with Oscar and what sort of control Oscar has over him. Mm-hmm. There's a reference at one point, Oscar says something about like, Am I going to kick your ass Oscar? again? The impression I get is that Joel is also an abuse victim, just a different style. Mm-hmm. I agree there could be more context there, but I kind of get it. I get why Joel is like this. I think there could have been maybe like one or two more lines to elaborate on that. Yeah. And the same way that Garth gets a whole uh, takedown rant from Oscar. Yeah. I-, I think my big thing with Joel is like, the first inklings we get of something going on, he and Gloria almost kiss while they're all hanging out at the bar. Mm-hmm. And both Garth and Oscar kind of berate him for it. At the time, I thought, like, oh, is he, like, in a relationship? Is he married? Is him cheating a, like, recurring problem? But the film doesn't go into it. And so for a while, it's just, like, why was that a thing? And then eventually kind of go, like, oh, I guess Oscar is just abusive and doesn't want people to be happy. Mm -hmm. Which, it makes sense, but it doesn't feel satisfying. Mm Mm-hmm. But we're not here to talk about Joel, boring hot man. We're here to talk about Anne Hathaway. Yes, Anne Hathaway, please, Gloria, our protagonist. Having a great time, honestly. Looking into the production of this film, Anne Hathaway was kind of getting bored with acting and looking for something interesting and kind of artsy. And she came across this script. Mm -hmm. And she definitely feels like she's really enjoying playing Gloria. When I think Anne Hathaway flick, I don't think sort of surreal kaiju film. Mm -hmm. There's a great bit to kind of establish who Gloria is, where she's asking Oscar how his family is, how's his mom, and he's like, My uh, dad passed away. I'm sorry, Oscar. I'm really sorry. When did that happen? Uh, A few years ago. He was a really nice guy. Yeah. How's your mom? I bet that was really hard on her. Uh, Well, she died long before that. Jesus, I'm so sorry. Yeah. You were still living here. Don't you remember? You you went to the funeral. It just goes to show you how removed from her hometown she is, and she's very self-centered. Yeah. Which, honestly, you need. If she was a better person, the arc she goes through in the film wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. Honestly, the metaphor of the film wouldn't work. This film has many metaphors and interpretations you can draw from it, mm-hmm. but I think it works better here because there's less going on. It's more that there's just like a single through line that you can read in a few different ways. Mm. The kind of initial easy read is that it's about having an addiction that is messing up your life so badly that you don't even realize how much damage you're causing the world around you. Mm. Which, yeah, that a pretty solid read on one of the ways addiction can manifest. I don't want to say that all addiction is the same. Yes. The other big theme is dealing with like abusive relationships. And they, there's a point in the film where Gloria figures out what's going on 
And the solution to solve everything is very simple. She just needs to not go to that playground anymore at eight in the morning. Mm-hmm. And there's there's a point in the film where I was like, okay, so she knows now. What What's the tension? We've got like half the movie left. And then it brings in Oscar and we start to see his dark side and some of the other things that he has been, had been talking about make more sense. The idea of it, you know how to better yourself as a person, but your abuser just won't let you is pretty real. Good job, movie. The film is very explicit in a takedown of Oscar. Like It doesn't leave the audience guessing. Like, Oscar hates himself. He hates how small his life is. And his ability to manifest as a kaiju allows him to escape that. It allows him to feel big. It's a very good example of humanizing a character without making them necessarily sympathetic. Mm-hmm. And Hathaway talks about his life feeling so small. And then at the climax of the film where she has gone to Seoul and the monster, the kaiju manifests back in town. And we get this visual of Gloria's kaiju just towering over Oscar. It's a great visual metaphor for their lives. Like Gloria made it out of town, tried to do something big. She was a journalist for a while and she kind of fell on hard times, but she's ready to pick herself back up and move on. And Oscar is just sitting and stewing about where he ended up. Her moment of success at the end where she is able to like just pick up this this guy who's caused her all this pain and just throw him aside like a piece of trash is honestly incredibly cathartic. Yes, so good. I also really am impressed with Jason Sudeikis here as Oscar. I would not have expected him to be able to pull off the like really dark and nuanced character that Oscar becomes. Mm-hmm. This character could have been very easily either too evil or too, like, oh, poor me, like, unbelievable if he, like, didn't kind of throw that needle really well. Yeah. I also think that, like, casting Sudeikis, who is mostly known for his, like, comedic roles, allows Oscar to better ingratiate himself with Gloria and the audience. Oh, like, yeah, for sure. It makes it so that the reveal of who Oscar really is is more compelling. Another thing I really love about this film is its ability to use sound to tell us what's going on in Seoul without actually having to show us visuals. Yes! It's so very good. Like, there's this one scene where Glory is showing off to her friends that she's the kaiju and how that all works. And so she's dancing, and we're seeing her dancing in this playground as Anne Hathaway, but we are hearing the screams of the people in Seoul as this monster is appearing. Mm-hmm. They give us some establishing shots so we understand like what the situation looks like in Seoul, but we don't have to go back every single time that there's something going on at the playground. We can just get that audio information to be able to suss out what's going on. It's very good. It, like, it also helps foreshadow the climax that the, the kaiju thing works both ways. Mm-hmm. At one point, a helicopter shoots a missile and half when she goes, oh, ow, that kind of hurt. Mm-hmm. And like the helicopter eventually like crashes into her head. And like that with the audio, it acts as really good foreshadowing. It establishes a specific way the mechanics work so that at the end, it's not an out of nowhere thing that this is all fine. Mm-hmm. I like that we spent some of the movie going, wow, 
why is it that in this certain place, she turns into a kaiju you know, across the world, and then we get an explanation. It's, she got hit by a bolt of lightning when she was a kid, and that's why. And the connection to Soul is specifically because she had a diorama of Soul that she was bringing to school. Oh, a class project kind of thing, yeah. Yeah. That Oscar broke because he's a bad person, and she was mad and called down lightning. I like that the movie gives us a mechanic, but the mechanic is just as mm, as the rest of it. Yeah. That's fine. That is... I don't need it to have any kind of logical reasons. I don't need it to be explained that she's like a demigod or or that she has psychic powers inherited from her yeah. father or whatever. I do think the film had to explain why it's only like these two that have this connection, mm-hmm. but the ex- explanation they gave us is enough for me. Like it can totally be this like weird mystical force. Mm-hmm. And the way they connect all the dots is really interesting. Like, oh, it's it's the connection to soul because of the diorama. It's these two because they were both here. The, the lightning came down because of the emotional situation. They are this like reptilian monster and this robot because those were the toys in their backpack. Mm-hmm. Gloria has like the weird tick where she scratches the middle of her head because that's where the lightning hit and she mm-hmm. has a scar there. <laughs> yeah, it all, it all tracks. It ties it up so neatly but leaves the weirdness. Mm-hmm. Which is really great. I will say, like, the toys fall out of their bag. I don't know if we need that shot. I think I would ex- accept that this is just what they manifest as. They don't need to have, like, the toy connection, but it's fine. It's yeah. fine. Like, I don't think it detracts necessarily, but I don't think we necessarily needed it. One other, like, weird thing that I love about this film that I, I think does such a great job of world building and making this feel real is that... As the whole situation with the kaiju is going on, the internet is filling up with memes about it. Yes, yes, it was so good. And Hathaway slaps Oscar, and then across the world, uh, a giant reptilian monster slaps a robot, and people um, make a lot of like hashtag thug life uh, pictures, like smoking with with sunglasses. It's great. Yeah. So much fun. If that were to happen in our world, that's exactly how it would go. Mm-hmm. Initial shock and horror, and then, nope, meme time. <laughs> Because of the themes it's engaging with, the film does this interesting thing where it's recontextualizing the small, petty violence of an abusive relationship into this large-scale tragedy that is affecting people halfway across the world. Mm -hmm. I like it for two reasons. One is because the small, petty violence of abuse does have far-reaching effects. It's not just affecting the one person who is being abused or just the abuser, but it's affecting like, everyone in their social circle, and sometimes even beyond. But it also, by making it this large-scale tragedy, it shows how serious the problem is, and how it could be solved if people actually started caring. Mm-hmm. And because of that, when the movie ends with like an entire city like cheering for the defeat of the monster, that is definitely kind of how that catharsis can feel. So it kind of works both ways in that mm-hmm. standpoint. Even, But even though that's happening, like this big cheering going on, and Hathaway is still kind of like relatively small amongst of that. She's, it's not like everything's fine. But she's still exhausted by all of this. She still yeah. has to like go find somewhere to recuperate, yeah. even though the world around her is celebrating. Yeah, they're not cheering for her. They're cheering that the situation is resolved. They're not like putting her up on a pedestal. Mm-hmm. And we, we do get the small moment where she goes into this bar in South Korea and she starts talking to the bartenders like you want to hear a story and it implies that she's going to tell her about the whole situation. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure how I feel about her alcoholism and whether that's insinuating that she's still not over that or what's going on with all that mm-hmm. but 
Uh, the, the movie ends with her being offered a drink by this bartender and... Uh, would you like something to drink? <sighs> she has a, a sort of disgruntled look on her face, but we don't necessarily know exactly what she's thinking, and so you can kind of put your own meaning into that, which I think is a good way to end it because it shows that she's not, like, fully finished growing. She has stuff to work on still, mm-hmm. um, which is, I think, a good way to look at growing out of... Uh, addiction and abuse that like it's not like you do one thing and it's over it's an ongoing process and the fact that she doesn't immediately say yes I want a drink she goes uh uh and kind of has to weigh that implies to me at least that she now has in- internal emotional technology to make better decisions and start to move away from that okay even if she doesn't do it right now yeah I can I can see that implying that glorious problems don't end just because the movie is Right. The events of the movie have given her a way to eventually end them. Yes. The recovery is not linear thing. Mm-hmm. The flowers. Yeah. I know there's stuff we haven't even gotten into about the way Oscar's abuse manifests in more subtle ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but time is running out, so we'll have to move on to our end segment, which is... Which is Finer Girl, Best Girl, where we are going to be talking about our two protagonists and decide which one... Better resolved their problems with a monster. Are we going for the very literal monster or the more metaphorical monsters? Uh, so, like, in Alien, the more metaphorical monster is capitalism. Let's go ahead and keep this simple. Okay. Um, maybe in round two we'll get more complex. Sure. Um, so we have Ripley versus the Xenomorph and Gloria versus herself, I guess? Or Oscar. Yeah, I'll allow it. Yeah, I think, yeah. I, I think Oscar yeah. is probably better. That is the explicit antagonist of this movie. Yes. There are no sequels to Colossal. No. There are many sequels to Alien. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the sequel, the next one is called Aliens, which means there are more of them. <laughs> At least two. Maybe more. Imagine. They have multiplied. <laughs> <laughs> the exact opposite of getting rid of the problem. Yeah. While I'm sure there are many deaths off screen uh, in Colossal, there are no name character deaths. Nobody got hurt. Well, maybe somebody got hurt, but nobody we knew. <laughs> Uh, so I say that, like, Gloria's doing better, because Ripley lost her entire team. Ripley doesn't have a support network anymore, whereas Gloria does. <laughs> does she? Joel? Joel, I do think her ex-boyfriend. That's fair. Uh, the friends that she did have back in New York. Mm-hmm. Who, like, none of these are great support networks, but they're at least something. Mm-hmm. She technically has a job. Still, I assume that if you blow up the cargo ship to destroy a monster you actually did not manage to destroy by blowing up a cargo ship, you were probably going to get fired. In fact, from what I know from the sequels, Will Hutani is not happy with Ripley, so yeah. Where, where is Gloria, exactly? It's now her own boss. Uh, I don't think so, because the bar burned down. Does she get to inherit that? Does she get workman's comp? I don't think that's how that works. It probably should be. If you turn into a giant monster and kill your CEO, you get to inherit the company. I'm also pretty sure that she was like being paid off books. Uh, fair. But I mean, she can definitely, like, write a book. <laughs> yes. Yeah, she's a writer. This is actually excellent for her. Yes. This is the best thing that could have happened to her. Best. <laughs> Quotation marks. That was Gloria, our final girl for the week. Yes. There's just one decision left. Mm-hmm. Which film is moving forward? So, I was very unsure when I started this because while Colossal is really fun, I was also going to say that, you know, Alien is more of a horror movie, whereas Colossal is horror, but in a in a very kind of prosaic, weird way. Mm-hmm. 
And I was going to argue that, you know, this is a horror bracket, so, you know, maybe the more horror should get to go ahead. Honestly, I'm more excited about watching Colossal again than I am watching Alien again. Well, a number of films on this bracket, as well as our previous one, were horror films. Not all of them were. And I don't think they need to be. Like, other films get to use monsters and get to use them well. It's just that they are very endemic to horror. Right. I mean, yeah, like, Mummy Returns, is, it's, it's a pulp action movie. Mm-hmm. Hotel Transylvania 3 is a wacky kids film. <laughs> and it has more monsters per capita than any other movie we've watched. Yes. I guess. Yeah, and our winner of Last Bracket, The Sixth Sense, it's arguably not a horror film. Yeah, they they tone down the horror, even. Yeah, it's it's more of a psychological thriller, which I would definitely... Which I reject as a category because it's only created so that uh, the Oscar could go to Silence of the Lambs without calling it a horror movie, and fuck Silence of the Lambs. I would also argue that Colossal definitely falls within that same sort of psychological thriller mold. Mm-hmm. And if if it was good enough for The Sixth Sense, it's good enough for Colossal. Absolutely. So yeah, Colossal is moving ahead and Alien doesn't get to escape mm-hmm. uh, before the self-destruct sequence hits. Mm-hmm. So uh, what's coming up next week? Next week, we are going to be diving into The Stepford Wives, the 2004 version with Nicole Kidman. For our robot movie. As well as Drag Me to Hell. For our Lamia movie, demon movie, and curse curse thing, yes. It is a little bit difficult to categorize. Uh, The antagonist of that film is very off-camera for most of it. Mm -hmm. Oh, we forgot to mention it for this week, but our monsters were aliens and kaiju. Yes. Um, As we're trying to do new monsters from last time. Mm -hmm. And Drag Me to Hell kind of got in because I know you're a huge fan, and I am looking forward to seeing it. So, Like, I wouldn't necessarily say huge fan. I I think it's interesting. Mm. When I was thinking about women-focused horror films, that was one of the first ones that came to mind. Mm. But if you want to watch The Step for Wives, you get dragged to hell and back. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and uh, wherever you catch your pods. Once again, this has been the Gratuitous Pods Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.